1958, Robert Monroe, a respected Virginia businessman, was leading a reasonably normal life until he found that he was able to separate from his physical body and to retain full consciousness. It was spring, 1958, a Sunday afternoon, and the family had gone to church. I lay down in the couch in the living room for a short nap while the house was quiet. When a beam or ray seemed to come out of the sky to the north at about a 30-degree angle from the horizon, it was like being struck by warm light. The effect when the beam struck my entire body was to cause it to shake violently or, or vibrate. I was utterly powerless to move. It was as if I were being held in a vice. Several months passed, and the vibration condition continued to occur. It almost became boring, until late one night when I was lying in bed just before sleep, the vibrations came, and I wearily and patiently waited for them to pass away so that I could go to sleep. As I lay there, my arm was draped over the right side of the bed, fingers just brushing the rug. Idly, I tried to move my fingers and found that I could scratch the rug. Without thinking or realizing that I could move my fingers during the vibration, I pushed with the tips of my fingers against the rug. After a moment's resistance, my fingers seemed to penetrate the rug and touch the floor underneath. With mild curiosity, I pushed my hand down farther. My fingers went through the floor, and there was the rough upper surface of the ceiling of the room below. I pushed my hand still deeper. It went through the first floor ceiling. My hand touched water. Without excitement, I splashed the water with my fingers. I yanked my arm out of the floor, pulled it up on the bed, and the vibrations ended soon after. I got up, turned on the light, and looked at the spot beside the bed. There was no hole in the floor or rug. They were just as they had always been. I looked at my hand and arm, and even looked for water on my hand. There was none, and my arm seemed perfectly normal. I looked about the room. My wife was sleeping quietly in the bed. Nothing seemed amiss. After proving to his satisfaction that this was neither a dream nor hallucination, Monroe went on to have further experiences in which he found he could travel to different localities, both near and far, while his body remained at home, lying, breathing in bed. In 1971, Monroe published Journeys Out of the Body, a book he wrote so that some other human being may be saved from the agony and terror in an area where there have been no concrete answers, that he may have comfort in the knowledge that others have had the same experience, and that in the years to come the accepted sciences of our culture will expand their horizons and research this area. If what he says can be proved, Monroe could very well turn out to be a spiritual Columbus. He was interviewed by a skeptical Nat Schuster. This power that you seem to possess, or this unique ability, seems to come to very few people. How do you account for the fact that you seem to possess this power? Well, I don't... Let's say that I first really don't think it's a power. Uh, and why I happen to have it... Uh, well, let's say after 16 years is still a mystery to me. We have had a lot of people go through this. We've had many studies as to exactly why this took place. But our Western science doesn't seem to have the answers to a lot of this. 
in various talks that I give at universities and other areas, I have discovered that roughly 25% of my audience has had at least one out-of-body experience. Well, haven't you ever had any? I'm afraid not. Well, now. I'm a healthy you, skeptic, but right. that sort of thing interests that's the, me very that's much. That's the best kind to have, are the uh, healthy skeptics, because they're the worst converts you can do. Become well, missionaries after I, a while. I have a doctor that uh, lives not too far from here who was a very healthy skeptic, but uh, we didn't convert him. He converted himself because uh, he took part in our research program here, and as a result, uh, he now is out and around in the room, in his bedroom. He hasn't gotten out of the bedroom yet, but that's been convincing enough for him as he rolls around on the ceiling and all sorts of things and comes down. The third day of the fifth month, 1959, morning. In a motel in Winston-Salem, I woke up early and went out to have breakfast at 7.30. Then I returned to my room about 8.30 and lay down. As I relaxed, the vibrations came and then an impression of movement. Shortly thereafter, I stopped, and the first thing I saw was a boy walking along and tossing a baseball in the air and catching it. A quick shift, and I saw a man trying to put something into the back seat of a car, a large sedan. The thing was an awkward-looking device that I interpreted to be a small car with wheels and electric motor. The man twisted and turned the device and finally got it into the back seat of the car and slammed the door. Another quick shift, and I was over city streets, about 500 feet, and almost instantly I was back in my body. I sat up and looked around. Everything seemed normal. Important aftermath. The same evening, I visited some friends, Mr. and Mrs. Agnew Banson, at their home. They were partially aware of my activities, and on a sudden hunch... I knew the morning event had to do with them. I asked about their son, and they called him into the room and asked him what he was doing between 8.30 and 9 that morning. He said he was going to school. Then asked more specifically what he was doing as he went. He said he was tossing his baseball in the air and catching it. Although I knew him well, I had no knowledge that the boy was interested in baseball, although this could be assumed. Next, I decided to speak about the loading of the car, Mr. Banson was astounded. Exactly at that time, he told me, he was loading a Van de Graaff generator into the back seat of the car. The generator was a large, awkward device with wheels, an electric motor, and a platform. He showed me the device. It was eerie to see physically something you had observed only from the second body. Once out of the body, writes parapsychological researcher Dennis B. Ardinger, Feats which were considered impossible to perform before become easily accomplished. Dr. Carl Gustav Jung wrote, in memories, dreams, reflections, of just one such incident. It seemed to me that I was high up in space. Far below, I saw the globe of Earth bathed in a gloriously blue light. Below my feet lay Ceylon, and in the distance ahead of me, the subcontinent of India. The visions and experiences were utterly real. There was nothing subjective about them. 
People frequently jerk in a peculiar manner just when they are falling asleep, writes occultist Lobsang Rampa in his book, You Forever. All too often, he says, this jerk is caused by a too rough separation of the astral and the physical body and happens because nearly everyone does astral traveling by night, even if most do not consciously remember their journeyings. Far rarer are the separations made consciously. Since writing his book, Robert Monroe has been teaching the conscious separation of what he calls the second body from its physical boundaries. At his Whistlefield Research Laboratories in Afton, Virginia, Monroe utilizes biofeedback monitoring equipment in an effort to induce the out-of-body experience. What is that? What is this we're listening? What is it we're listening to now? A recording of something? Yeah, it's a And this is used to put the subject at ease? Yeah, no, this induces the state. I see. I want to hear it a little better. It's all right. We have been uh, experimenting with techniques for the last year here in our laboratory. Uh, at this stage, we have developed a fairly effective program. I would say it's pushing on the order of about 42% effective, and that's pretty good in this field. Uh, the main problem we still encounter is overcoming what I have described as this fear barrier. People think, oh, it would be a wonderful experience, but when it actually takes place, it is so disconcerting that our job is to keep it from being traumatic. Mm -hmm. You obviously have taught people, or yes, instructed yes, people, yes. in mm -hmm. this process. Mm -hmm. Could you relate an experience by one of your students, if I may call him that? Yeah. I had a, an electronics engineer, for example, who uh, uh, his work took him out of the country, and uh, he had just had sort of local out-of-body activity uh, before he took this trip out of the country. And then during that particular trip, this it was like having a good target to come back to. And he came back here to the lab. He came to his wife. He came to a friend of his, which was most interesting, and discovered that his... Uh, he This was the interesting part of it. Uh, he visited... A, an old war buddy of his and to his great surprise uh, he realized that his war buddy uh, this was world Korea I guess uh, he couldn't locate where he was living and so as a result he's, he realized he says you're not physically alive are you and his, laughed, and his friend laughed says no of course not where did you ever get that idea he says, I thought so. Well, in returning to the company, down back into the United States, he looked up, and his war buddy had been dead for three years. Well, that's an amazing experience well, I say, so this was one of our trainees, as it were. Now, here we are on a beautiful day. Sun is shining. We've got the Blue Ridge Mountains in the background. The birds are singing. In fact, some of them may be recorded on the tape. And we're in what appears to be a scientific lab. We are surrounded by very impressive apparatus where obviously some 
Serious research is being done into the field. Is there any practical purpose involved here? Well, we have, uh, uh, we were invited out to the, uh, into California for a series of seminars that was sponsored by Eslin, the Eslin Institute, which some of you uh, may be aware of. And uh, this uh, triggered off a whole series of seminars designed to teach people how to perceive and understand this basic vital life energy which is the energy that one uses to perform this out-of-body state. Uh, so this is a crash training course that we conduct over a weekend to teach people how to get started in this field. In Journeys Out of the Body, Robert Monroe describes his voyage to see his friend, Dr. Richard Gordon. For several months, I thought about an attempt to go to Dr. Gordon whatever he was. He was the first person close to me who had died since the development of my wild talent. I was sure that Dr. Gordon wouldn't mind if he did continue to exist. Then, on a Saturday afternoon, I made the attempt. It took about an hour to get into the vibrational state, and I finally swung up out of the body, mentally yelling, I want to see Dr. Gordon! After a moment, I started to move rapidly upward, and soon all I could see was a blur of motion and feel what seemed like a rush of very thin air. Also, I felt a hand under my left elbow. Somebody was helping me get there. After what seemed an endless journey, I suddenly stopped, or was halted. I was standing in a large room. A male voice spoke almost directly into my left ear. If you stand right here, the doctor will see you in a minute. I nodded agreement. A group of men were in the room. Three or four were listening to a young man, about twenty-two, who was excitedly relating something to them, complete with gestures. I turned and looked again at the group of men, thinking perhaps that I should ask them about Dr. Gordon. At just that moment, the short, thin, young man with a big shock of hair stopped in the middle of his conversation and looked at me intently for a minute. After the short glance, he turned back to the other men and continued his animated discussion. I couldn't wait for Dr. Gordon, and I decided to leave. It was a long journey back. The time away from the physical was two hours. The following Saturday, I tried again. Just at the moment I left the physical body and started to yell for Dr. Gordon, a voice spoke right beside me, almost irritated. Why do you want to see him again? You saw him last Saturday. I was so surprised I dropped back into the physical almost instantly. I had expected to see a man of seventy. Later, at a visit to the home of Dr. Gordon's widow, I managed to see an old photo of Dr. Gordon when he was twenty-two. Of course, I didn't tell Mrs. Gordon why I wanted to see the picture. It matched perfectly the man I saw and who saw me there. She also mentioned that at that age he was very active and eager, always in a hurry, and had a big shock of blonde hair. Someday I will try again to visit Dr. Gordon. In your travels, uh, some very interesting experiences are described, including the meeting with your late father and yes, your mm -hmm. friend the doctor. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, on a number of occasions you relate the fact that in your travels out of the body, 
arms were holding you up. That's true. Mm -hmm. Help was given. Yes, that's right. Who is giving this help? <laughs> well, I know a little bit more about it anyway. Uh, this, uh, These helpers, as I describe them in the book, uh, I'm a part of their team, as it were. Uh, I'm a part of their tribe. How do you put it? Because it, there is not a, a word in English, anyway, that particularly fits it. Uh, most, if not all, uh, have a great sense of familiarity to me, as if they are someone you know, but you just can't remember their name. Oh, I see. Okay? You're talking about a very comfortable oh, yes. feeling oh, that yes. you get. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, you, you don't really feel that these are supernatural beings and, and not in, in the, the sense of angels? Not in the sense of... Uh, not as you use the word supernatural. I, I kind of shudder back from this word supernatural because uh, these are very natural. Now, uh, uh, they, as being supernatural or angels, they may be angels in, in, uh, in our loose use of the word because I suspect that what people have encountered as angels may be just such helpers. Huh? What has this done to your outlook on so-called traditional religion? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I hope that I've made very clear and the profound effect it's had upon me philosophically, and I'll use that word ahead of religion. Uh, philosophically, I have come not to the faith or the hope or the belief, but to the knowledge, and this is a great innate knowledge, uh, that we do survive what we call physical death. And this is, is a tremendous thing to know, not to believe, but to know. And this, uh, I sound like I'm preaching, but this is a very, very deep felt thing to me, this knowing. Therefore, uh, when in turn uh, I think of death or of death of other people, uh, it's not necessarily the tragic thing. And secondly, uh, the life that we live as we are passengers in this spaceship Earth uh, is not a finite thing. It is only a, a moment in an eternity rather than a totality in itself. And once you know this, you see, you have a different thing. That You know, this, mm -hmm. it, it makes the ecstasies and the agonies of this lifetime something to experience, but not to overwhelm you. Do you see the difference? Yes, indeed I do. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens to the traditional hierarchy of Western religion, as we, most of us, in the Judeo-Christian tradition believe? God, angels, reward, punishment, etc. Well, uh, yeah, I think one of the biggest... For instance, I uh, may I interrupt mm. and expand the question somewhat. The meeting with your friend, the doctor. Mm -hmm appears to be in a, in a physical setting. There's a room. Yes. There's a group of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, yes. Now, I, I, I think this is a, uh, a thing set up for comfort's sake. For example, if you are going to convert back to energy and you have been totally accustomed to this physical reality, it's nice to have something to hang on to like a a room to go to rather than just an empty energy space uh, is to avoid a great deal of the traumatic change to be in nothingness. And I feel 
without saying that I know this, and I'm very careful about what I know, incidentally, but I believe that these are set up in this area, this uh, locale too, as I describe it, is a place where thought can create anything. And I think that uh, a room is set up like this for incoming uh, people who have been in physical reality, and they go there and they don't feel quite so displaced, as it were. Mm-hmm. You see, because and these are created purely out of thought. Bob, how do you answer charges, and I'm sure they've been leveled at you, that you're nothing but a charlatan? Well, now, that's a good question. Uh, why would I be a charlatan? Let me put it this way. Let, let's get down. People have to have motivations, right? Well, let's take the writing of a book, for example. Uh, I certainly didn't write the book to make money. There's a lot easier ways to make money than writing a book. And I'm fully capable of, of making money in much more effective ways than writing a book. Uh, so I think that I can safely throw that one out. Uh, in other words, you have to have motivation to be a charlatan. Uh, let's take the next one, let's say, as an ego trip. Well, I've had a very good ego trip already. Um, what do you need for an ego trip? Well, I've made a lot of money in my lifetime so far. Uh, I've held some very important positions in the business world. I've had, uh, what I thought anyway, some uh, very good prestige in the broadcasting industry. So I don't think I'm on an ego trip. I don't feel saintly. I have no uh, guru tendencies. So why, why could, what would be my motivation in being a charlatan? Is there some sort of central authority that you feel is present during these experiences? Uh, not looking over your shoulder, as you know, mm-hmm. but there is uh, uh, there's, uh, there is a series of overall graduations in where you are, I suppose. Um, overall authority. I've reported some such encounters in the book, but I'm... I cannot say that uh, I have met God because God's a far away, far away set of rules. Uh, but you become much more totally convinced that this organization is uh, is created by some uh, master designer. Let's put it that way. The second body that you talk about, the, the spiritual essence the one that allows you to freely travel and experience the various things. Is this what is known as the soul? I would suspect so. Uh, It's been labeled all sorts of things uh, uh, throughout man's existence, and soul is one of them. Uh, I think soul is the essence. What we've discovered is that, let's say, the second body that I describe is a still sort of a vehicle, an interim vehicle, as it were, for this inner total self that is the soul. Uh, uh, That's what I would call it. And uh, you become aware of this as you begin to uh, get more deeply into the patterns you encounter that what you use in the second body is sort of an energy form which you can drop at will. And then you're, it's sort of like a collapsing sun, as it were, you go back to a harder nucleus of yourself. From time to time, we have dreams that transport us to another locality. But when we awaken, we remember only minor snatches of what they were about. And sometimes, 
only an image or two comes to the surface to remind us that we dreamt at all. But can some dreams, if not all, be in reality an actual astral projection? Shafika Karagula is a respected neuropsychiatrist who has in the past worked with Wilder Penfield at McGill University. She's the author of Breakthrough to Creativity, in which she catalogued psychically talented people and their abilities. Here's an excerpt from her book. I continued to seek out as many people as possible with different types of higher sense perception and study and evaluate their ability. My friend Vicky finally broke down and described an experience which she had had all her life. From time to time, and sometimes for many weeks and months at a time, she went regularly to classes at night when she was asleep. She could repeat word for word on awakening the lectures that had been given and describe the class demonstrations which had been made. From time to time, she read accounts of some new scientific theory or discovery that was in print for the first time, which she had heard about in the night classes months or even years previously. She finds this type of experience an interesting phenomenon, but says nothing about it. She is the president of a corporation and cannot afford to appear odd in the eyes of other people. I finally persuaded her to discuss these classes with me in more detail. She explained that they are different from a dream in that the discourses given by the lecturer are in clear and orderly sequence. At times teaching aids are used, or there are laboratory demonstrations. She goes to sleep and seems almost immediately to find herself on the campus or in a building or a classroom of the university. The demonstrations or teaching aids are what she calls thought forms. The teacher or lecturer instantly brings into manifestation in the air in front of him three-dimensional models which he can turn and alter at will. In one lecture on the atom, which she recently attended, the lecturer discussed the neutron of the atom. He called it a sound binder and said that the binding energy of an atom is what might be described as ultrasonic in a very narrow frequency band, slightly different for different elements. Vicky remembered 12 or 14 people present in the class. The lecturer turned to two scientists present in the class who were Russian and said, Since your country has made certain discoveries in this regard, it is deemed wise to give this information to others. You lost several of your good scientists recently because they accidentally happened upon a frequency affecting the iron atom. In the last few years, at my insistence, many of these lectures which Vicky attends while she is asleep have been dictated and typed, and the material remains to be evaluated. Vicky herself makes no claims about it. The lectures always follow an orderly sequence of ideas and could be taken for a clear, intelligent discourse heard in a college lecture room. The lectures are on many different subjects because Vicky can choose the subject that interests her. Usually, the other students in the class are not known to Vicky in waking life, though she may see the same students from month to month in the classes. Occasionally, she sees people she knows in waking life at the lectures, 
At times, a number of students gather for questions at the end of a class. On one occasion, Vicky decided to see whether she could verify the presence of a friend in a night class. Would he be aware of it, and would he remember anything regarding the class? The friend was living across the United States. A few cautious questions on the telephone verified that he remembered being present. He did not remember the details of the lecture as clearly as she did. In this connection, it is reported that Niels Bohr, the well-known atomic scientist, had a strange dream in his student days. He dreamed that he was on a sun which consisted of burning gas. There were planets that moved swiftly around this sun, attached by thin filaments. When he awoke, he had the model of the atom, which is substantially the same today. As a case history, Vicky's going to lectures at night intrigues us. But before we rationalize away her experiences as being part of the subtleties of dreams, here's Robert Monroe, who independently experienced a similar adventure. What would be the most um, spectacular experience in your view that has occurred to you since the completion of the book? About four years ago, I made a decision that this second body is not necessarily designed to operate in this physical matter world, and second, that my conscious self really didn't have a good idea of what to do with this particular ability. So about four years ago or so, uh, I said, well, I'm not going to attempt to determine what to do with it. I'll let my total self, my supermind, as I call it, decide what to do. And since that time, uh, my pattern has evolved very much. Uh, I say this because I think this is probably the most spectacular part of what has, uh, what, you know, since the publication of the book, is that I have been going to a class, and this in this class, which is, <laughs> I don't describe it as a classroom, but in albeit it is a form of instruction, and there is an instructor, and there are more than one of us as students, and I'm being taught means, methods, ways of being that I cannot relate to this physical reality. If there is any way that it does work in this physical reality, I don't know. I cannot see the purpose of it. And I hope that someday all of this training will fall into place and then I'll know what it, what is, it is to be used for. It may be designed for use in no way in this physical reality, but instead in other non-physical ways of being. Astral projection, according to writer Christopher Dane, is most apt to occur in times of stress, pain, injury, accident, danger, when there is a psychological or physiological need for it. Astral projection, as with the psi factor, the unknown factor of ESP, occurs when the normal sensory channels are insufficient to deal with specific crisis conditions, when something extra is needed to pull the individual through the trauma. The case of Ed Morrell is a classic example of out-of-body projection in a crisis situation. For four years, Ed Morrell was a convict at a state prison in Arizona. 
During this time, he endured heinous torture at the hands of the prison's sadistic guards who sought to break the man's spirit by any means. The prisoner was trussed in two tightly laced jackets, then had water poured over him. The straitjackets would slowly shrink, making the prisoner feel that he was being inexorably squeezed to death. Morel was in isolation, his cell a dark, windowless, underground dungeon. There was no possible access to the outside world. Yet every time the guards laced him into this torturous device, his mind was able to soar beyond the petty confines of prison walls and tortured body. Usually he experienced intense pain for a half hour while the jacket slowly tightened. His eyes felt they were being forced out of their sockets. The cords on his neck stood out in minute testimony to the excruciating torment. Then his body would be suffused with an ineffable peace. He was oblivious to his body. Then Morel was aware of himself somewhere outside and above his physical body. Morel was a magnificently free man. Morel had numerous experiences in which he obtained information which was later substantiated by persons whose honesty was above reproach. He witnessed a sea tragedy which was verified and he even projected himself into the office of the governor of Arizona where he predicted the exact hour and date of his release. The story of this remarkable man has often been told. It was described at length by Jack London in his book The Star Rover. It is interesting to note that while there are persons who can project at will, Morel was not able to do so. On those days when left to himself, free from abuse, he frequently tried to project himself out of his miserable cell, but each time he was unsuccessful. Ed Morel was able to free himself from the pain of a physical torture his body could not of itself escape. Something extra was needed, and he was fortunate to discover that extra something. With this remarkable paranormal ability, Ed Morell was able to endure four otherwise impossible years of imprisonment and torture. Science has yet to prove that it is the soul, but there is a long occult tradition about the astral body. It's been held to be an exact replica of the physical body, but of a more subtle and tenuous substance. Supposedly, it inhabits the physical body, and because of its molecular structure, can occupy the same space as the material body. Writer Alan Spraggett, author of many bestsellers on psychic phenomenon. Among occultists... Among spiritualists, people who believe in an unseen world that interpenetrates this world, there has long been a tradition that the human body, the physical body, has a non-physical counterpart. And this psychic double, as it's sometimes called, or astral body, or etheric body, is supposed to indicate its presence by uh, a glow, which normally can be seen only by clairvoyants, people gifted with this special kind of psychic vision. But it's said that under certain conditions, uh, even normal people can see this aura. And uh, a British physician named uh, Kilner, Walter J. Kilner of St. Thomas Hospital in London, published a book back in 1911 called The Human Atmosphere. It was based on his experiments in looking through screens 
glass screens that had been coated with a derivative of coal tar, with a dye. And uh, through these screens, the human body was seen to give off a kind of smoky emanation. And Kilner said that this was, he felt, an emanation of this psychic body. And he noted, at least in his observations, that the aura varied according to the mood, the mental state, and the physical condition of the person. If there are other bodies inhabiting and even extending beyond our own, perhaps the work of the late Yale Medical School professor Harold Saxton Burr will help to explain the astral body. Burr wrote in his book Fields of Life of energy fields that surround and control the growth and development of all living forms. Burr's work has been used by some to provide a rational explanation of the existence and immortality of the soul. At this stage, though, Burr's work has consistently revealed the existence of these permanent electromagnetic fields which mold the material of the cells. Sheila Ostrander, author of A Handbook of Psi Discoveries. These energy fields seem to be the matrix or mold that forms the physical. And he was able to demonstrate this with uh, uh, developing... Uh, fetuses of, of little animals where he would say, I'm going to uh, take a reading of the different vibratory energy frequencies of the different parts of this energy field around this developing embryo. And then he would take the blob of material that should have formed the leg and he would put it in at the arm, take the arm off and put it at the leg. It still formed what it should have in the right places. And so he said, it isn't the matter that's forming the field, the field must be forming the matter, it must be determining which part of this blob of cells is going to form the backbone and which will form the legs and so on. So that's just the beginning and from there we're getting into a, a whole new area. Somebody said that uh, this proves the existence of the soul. This shows that the, the soul is, is immortal and can leave the, uh, the shackles of the body at death. Would you say that this has been proven to you in some way or another through these experiences? Yeah, I think I no longer have any fear of death at all because I, I don't sense death as... Uh, I have a sense of the energy within me and I have a sense that, that I'm made up of some form of energy which then transforms when my body goes, but that energy remains intact. Uh, and it, it transcends uh, and moves into some other kind of space. I feel that there are things that I don't understand and that I'm prepared to, to look at those, uh, whereas before I'd be very skeptical if anyone were to say that this kind of thing actually occurred. Um, what it means to me is that that the energy that makes up living is a completely different form than I think any of us really understand, and that the uh, the energy of life is something that continues on for a long period of time and probably never stops. Build thee more stately mansions, O my soul, 
as the swift seasons roll. Leave thy low vaulted past. Let each new temple, nobler than the last, shut thee from heaven with dome more vast. Till thou at length art free, leaving thy outworn shell by life's unresting sea. Travelers has been the 10th program in this Ideas series on passengers. Interviews by Nat Schuster and Len Scher. Narration by George McLean, with readings by Margaret Pachu. The program was produced by Len Scher. I'm Jim Robertson. Good night. <laughs>